Welcome to the Microsoft 365 Developer Podcast with your hosts, Jeremy Thake and Paul Schaeflein. Each week, you'll catch us speaking to expert developers about new tech, lessons learned, and opinions in this space. So we're here with Daryl Mill this week. How are you doing, Daryl? It's a long time no see, like all of 24 hours. I haven't seen you in months, so it's great to see you catch up. Indeed, I am doing fine. Thank you for having me, folks. Then again, I haven't seen Jeremy for months either. It's been a kind of a busy time, but that's okay. <laughs> We've, it's been quiet. Sorry. Sorry, listeners. Um, so for those that don't know Daryl Miller, what does Daryl Miller do at Microsoft? And what did he do before Microsoft? That's a long story. Um, I am at Microsoft Graph. I'm on Microsoft on the Microsoft Graph team. I am an API architect on the Microsoft Graph team. What does an API architect do in the Microsoft Graph team? The politically correct answer is I help teams build better APIs and more consistent APIs, and I help them bring APIs to Microsoft Graph that will hopefully make all of our customers happy and delighted. Well, you'll never get all of us happy all the time, but thanks for the effort. We try. (laughs) (laughs) Just to give an idea of the scale, how many different teams do you work with on a monthly level? It's hard to say because we could have one group that you would call a team and three different people from that team in, in two weeks could come with minor little changes. We'll get teams coming to us with, hey, I need to add one value to an enum or I need to add one property to this entity. And then the next day we'll have uh, a, a sister team or something that you would consider to be part of the same team. Um, come with, oh, we're going to build a whole new uh, set of endpoints, new entities, a whole new set of functionality. Consider something like the search. The, the Microsoft search team is actually spread like literally across the world um, and can have completely different pieces of functionality coming. So I mean, we, we do just over on the... Um, our M365 or enterprises and design devices side of the world, we probably do about a hundred different API changes a quarter. Um, and then there's all of the our identity and security and compliance and Intune and ma- uh, management stuff that are another set of APIs that there's different API review teams for. I mean, there's just an absolute ton of changes going into Microsoft Graph all of the time. And so how many API architects are part of these API reviews across, I mean, we call it the SKIM team now, right? Because it's security and compliance, identity management under Charlie Bell, and then E plus D, which is where you're in. So across those two worlds, how many are there? I'm sure there's probably some ones I don't know about now. Seven, eight. There's probably about 10 or 12 people who actively participate in API reviews across the three review boards. Some of those are full-time sort of on it. Others, it's a case of their engineers or PMs who work related to APIs, and they also participate in the API reviews. Uh, interesting. So, so I've written an API for our product that works just great for me. What kind of things is an API architect going to tell me I'm doing wrong? Because obviously, I'm just laser focused on my thing. And I presume that's what developers at Microsoft are. They're working in their workload or whatever. And then they come to this board and you're looking at the big picture. So what kind of things are you t- asking them to think about and, and work on? 
again, it ranges from the trivial little things like, did you name your all your properties using camel case instead of Pascal case? Um, <laughs> d- did you write it is enabled or enabled and then a noun? Like, it, it, there's a lot of those kind of niggly little inconsistencies. Did you call it? create date time or created date time. I, I know I'm not the only one who's sat there like trying to debug some a- API call forever with some property name that I thought was called this, but in this particular case, it was named something slightly different. <laughs> um, so it, th- there's a lot of those kind of niggly things. Um, there's also a set of conventions that we try and follow across Graph insofar as this is generally how you create a new um resource within a collection of resources. This is how if you want to provide a value that is only used whilst creating it, but then it's read only from that point on, this is how you would tend to do it. Uh, We want to be able to update a whole bunch of objects at once. Well, this is our standard pattern uh, that we uh, recommend you use when doing that. Because developers are very creative. They will come up with all kinds of different solutions to in order to solve problems. And we're just there to cr- squash some of that creativity. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I guess it's the, the benefit of squashing it or standardizing it to one path is that, you know, the old pre- premise of the graph is that we you will make it easy for developers if they're doing stuff against the calendar resource object or the files resource object that they behave in similar ways and you don't have to relearn. And so it is a tremendously valuable job, but I don't think you're well liked within the group. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're not liked for two reasons. It's because A, sometimes things slip through and it's like, hey, how come when we upload an email attachment, it's not quite the same as when we upload a file attachment. It's like, well, yeah, but a OneDrive was created three, four years ago and we've learned a few lessons since then. And so we did it a little bit differently when it's uploading mail attachments. But then, yeah, you're right. On the other side of things is we stand in the way of of our team shipping the features that they want to deliver to their customers. And in some cases, they don't find out about you till it's too late is what I've experienced as well. We're getting a lot better at that. Um, We are spending a lot more time these days um, getting in really early uh, where teams are just thinking about building APIs and they're coming to us and saying, okay, we have this thing that we're getting demand from customers uh, who want us to expose this API. This is the shape that we're thinking of doing, and we'll provide them feedback in in a in a much more relaxed and informal session where we're not actually doing an, an API review. And and that's been a great experience. It's much easier uh, to make changes happen earlier on in the process. Who do you typically deal with in those scenarios? Like I was a bit shocked when you shared the balance of software development engineers versus product managers versus architects and the discussions you have, like what would you say would be that balance in Microsoft of the the audience you talk to about these things? It is probably 80% engineering and 20% PM. We are trying to shift that balance. Uh, There is still that, uh, some folks still look at, APIs as an implementation detail, which when you're talking with your peer team and you're doing interactions within the organization, it might very well be an implementation detail. 
But when you're exposing an API to the third-party ecosystem and customers are going to build products that depend on that, then it's a whole lot more difficult to come in later and go, ah, yeah, we made a little mistake here. Let's just go change this thing. Both on an on a team-by-team basis, we are seeing more acknowledgement and recognition that, no, this is we're really building a product and the PMs are actively getting involved in that. And also from a, from a higher organizational level, there's a lot of initiatives at Microsoft now where people are recognizing, no, APIs really can be a product in, into themselves and uh, growing that ecosystem around that is really valuable and a critical part of Microsoft's future. You know, obviously your APIs are near and dear to my heart with the stuff I'm doing. And the consistency, while it's great, it's not everywhere. And we understand that. <clears throat> so, but do you get involved more with the key thing that pops in mind is permissions? Every, every workload has a different set of permissions. Do you get involved with that discussion at all? And obviously, we, I know you can't dictate what's going on, but I'm curious as to how, how those get managed if they do at all. We do. And we are a lot more involved now in API review than we were earlier. It has become more important to us now as we're trying to guide teams towards producing um, more fine-grained permissions and create new permissions whenever we create new data that we think uh, administrators are going to want to have some level of control over. And so we we spend quite a bit of time with teams talking about the design of their permissions with regards to what an application is allowed to do and what scope of information it can access um, and whether or not it can access it on its own without an app, without a user or uh, our app-only permissions or whether or not it requires uh, a delegated user in order to be able to access it. So, yes, we, we spend a lot of time in that space and trying to keep the consistency there because it's so critical um, to for it to be really clear uh, to administrators when they're going to consent to this application to be run within their enterprise that they understand what it is. Or even uh, the end user in some scenarios, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. In the consumer, do I want this app to be able to go and access my data? And if if it can do the job without me giving it access to the photos that are on my camera, that would be a great thing too. And so like Gareth Jones is another um API architects in the in the ND side and in Olga as well. Gareth shared internally recently the docs that I wasn't aware of were publicly open sourced. Can you talk a little bit more about those docs and the history there? Because I thought that was quite interesting. The standards docs. Our API guidelines? Yeah. Yeah. They that was an initiative, well, it's probably six or seven years ago now, um, where the company recognized that we needed standard API guidelines across the entire company in order to drive towards consistency. Um, Because being able to call other teams' APIs within the company is just as valuable internally as it is for um, a third-party ecosystem. And so um, a bunch of very important people got together and produced a, a set of REST API guidelines for the company. Many of those guidelines are are continue to be followed today. There have been some 
revisions. We, there is now, um, if you look at those guidelines, there's the main core guidelines, and then there's a folder that contains um, basically a delta for Azure service APIs. And the Azure team have extended and said, yeah, we follow the guidelines, but more specifically, we also do this within Azure. And we're also working in Graph to now uh, do a very similar thing and say, yeah, we follow the guidelines, but we do things in this particular way uh, on Microsoft Graph. And th there are some fairly fundamental differences between the way Azure services work and the way graph services work. Uh, and so those are all documented out there. And we are, one of the things that we're trying to do in graph is, is rather than it becoming just one really long guideline doc that nobody really, really wants to read the whole thing, because it's not the most exciting reading, is to break it down into small patterns. So um, much like the original Gang of Four Patterns book, uh, the idea is, hey, I have this particular problem to solve in an API. There's going to be a pattern that says, well, this is, the, this is one option that you have for solving that particular problem. Here are the pros and cons of that particular pattern. And uh, we're, we're just publishing that out all on GitHub so that both uh, we can point our internal teams to it uh, when we say, hey, you should go do it like this. And also, if consumers of Graph API want to know, well, what are the guidelines about how we build APIs? Yeah, so good learning to understand those standards, right? Is there tooling? Like, I remember, like, this notion of linting tooling and so forth in the past through things I've worked on as an we call them API producers mm. internally, as opposed to people listening that are API consumers. Are, is there tools that can kind of check what they're writing so that by the time they give it to you, your red pen isn't on fire because they've caught a lot of those things in the standards and guidelines? Uh, we have um, both a command line tool uh, and a web-based tool that we are working on uh, that will help us during API review and as teams are designing their APIs where they can run the API description through um, a linting process that will identify what uh, whether there's any violations of our naming guidelines and like, you know, the whole Pascal case versus Campbell case, that's an easy thing to auto-detect. Not all of the things are easy to detect in an automated fashion, but it, it, it certainly is um, one of the tools in our toolkit in order to reduce uh, the time spent in an API review doing little trivial manual stuff. You know, when it comes to like what the... Uh, that, that, that's fine. The semantics of the API are, like you said, easy to catch, but sometimes it's it's what the API does and how it does it that can trip up ex the developers or consumers like me, right? So big thing, as you mentioned before, I want to do a bunch of requests and batching or getting differences of deltas and stuff. Do you, do you try to push folks into doing a certain way of these task-oriented things instead of just CRUD operations? There are a variety of patterns for doing certain things. We do generally try and keep things fairly CRUD-like, um, and there are some capabilities that have been described in the OData protocol that allows you to do batch-like things more like a CRUD. Like you can now, in some places, you can actually patch a collection, um, which would allow you to add many items. And actually, you can add and remove from a collection in a single operation. So sometimes we'll recommend that to teams as the approach to take. If there is an obvious way of doing CRUD, 
then uh, we will guide them down that path because it's principle of least surprise. We don't take that to a logical extreme where it's like, oh, if you want to cancel this thing, then set the property of the status to canceled, right? Like we're quite happy to use um, what OData calls actions and functions, where you just post to an endpoint that actually perform uh, some kind of thing that does does a, um, a, a an operation with a side effect. So we are not fervently strict on any particular type of rules. It's a case of what will feel the most natural uh, to developers. Yeah, because I can see the, the a couple things that have batched and it's been all since I looked, right? So if I needed to create an item in a collection and there's a related collection, then I, I need the, the the idea of the primary entry to, to put it in as a foreign key in the subsidiary entry. Can I do that in batching nowadays, right? Those are the big questions that uh, otherwise I end up getting very chatty. So that, and I know that's kind of dependent on workload, but those are the kind of things that struggle. And obviously the graph folks always want us to do Delta queries instead of, you know, pound away at it and stuff like that. So uh, those are the key things that you at least talk to them about, I hope. You, you can have dependencies between like do this one before you do this one. There's no mechanism in the batch uh, in order to retrieve a value from one in order to place uh, a value in the next. However, OData itself has some natural primitives, right? So that allow you to do things like that. For example, if you're going to do uh, get a user and find out what their OneDrive is, you can say, Whack me, whack drive, which under the covers, what it's actually doing is going and finding out who the user is, going and getting the drive ID, then making a request to go get the drive. Right? And so OData, while there's lots of things that I might criticize about the OData protocol. <laughs> no, I can't believe that. There are some nice concepts. Um, there's things where you can set... Um, you can create an object and also set up a foreign key at the same time. So you can, um, I'm going to completely blank on an example here, but like. No, but uh, but uh, yeah, uh, yeah, I just not think, right? So if the, if the primary key is in the URL because that's the entity ID and then anything in the, in the body must relate to that primary ID because it's in the same request. Now, so yeah, thinking outside the box that I can, I can sort of make that happen. I kind of like that. Yeah, like creating a team, but then adding members to the team immediately. You don't have to create the team, then get the ID, then make a secondary request to go and set all of the, the the members of the team. You can do that in a, in a single request. Now, it's been, we're recording this on Friday the 27th. It was billed this week. And, it, you know, our Ask the Experts panel that we did, we did get the question we always get, which is like, where is GraphQL? And, you know, obviously this being REST and OData from a graph perspective, it, you do a pretty good job of explaining like why we call it the graph in terms of the graph, like I call it the graphiness of the graph. Like, how, how do you explain this when you're talking to internal API producers of the values of adding those graphiness aspects to the, their API they're designing? Yeah, so th there's probably two primary examples of, of graphiness from a retrieval point of view because we've already talked about the graphiness from a creating point of view, being able to sort of do two things at once. But the classic example is go get me and inf an information about me and information about my manager, all right? Or just go and get my manager, right? There's a relationship between me 
who is a user, and my manager, who is a user. And there's that relationship exists. There's the same relationship for direct reports. Find my direct reports within the organization. And so that is what OData or calls a navigation property. And it basically describes a relationship between two things within the API that I can actually express in a single URL and traverse that relationship. And so that's one way that we can navigate relationships between pieces of data that is in our our graph of data. The other way is with the OData expand. And folks who are familiar with GraphQL um, will be used to this idea of being able to ask for an object, but then include related objects, whether they be like in a one-to-many relationship or a many-to-one relationship, and with an expand. So I can now say, go get me uh, this email message and include all of the attachments by using the expand uh, operator. It's not the most elegant of syntax when you try and do a really, really complicated thing in a single URI. But I mean, URIs were never designed to be particularly elegant and beautiful things in the first place. Or that expressive. (laughs) (laughs) But um, you definitely can do some of those uh, GraphQL type of things where you're able to navigate relationships between the, the graph of data. But you have to work with the API producer to explicitly define those relationships, right? That's not it doesn't come for free no, without the, them the, doing work. The unfortunately nothing comes for free without doing work. <laughs> Somebody's gotta do it somewhere down the line. I should tell you that at school very early on in life. <laughs> That's right. The, the for things like uh, expand, um, yes, there is definitely work a team has to do. They have to recognize that, hey, this is a particular scenario that is worth supporting, and therefore we should go do that. And it's also important to rec- for for consumers of the API to recognize, hey, this is this is something that would be useful for me to be able to grab these two pieces of data, two pieces of related data at once, and that's kind of, that's the kind of feedback that is is really valuable to teams while we're going through the beta phase of releasing APIs. Don't, don't just look at the shape of things. Look at how you want to interact with stuff and be aware of what is possible within the OData protocol and say, hey, can you make this possible? And teams will go, yeah, sure, we can we can add that. It's not actually a lot of work if you're using some of the internal OData libraries to add that capability. Um, it's just a case of teams need to know that customers are going to make use of it before they go do that work. Right. Yeah. And sometimes my experience has been like the the team, the API producers, I've got very specific scenarios in mind of why they're shipping their APIs. But then the minute you open their eyes to, so someone's going to use it like this and they're like, no, they're not. And then we get in beta or private preview and they see their ISVs using it in these creative ways. And then these API producers realize it is a product. The API is a product. It will be used in ways that they don't think it's going to be used. And so I think the experience that you, you as API architects kind of give as part of that review is is really good. I As as people listening, the other thing that really impresses me about what Daryl and the team do is you do go look at the feedback. So aka.ms slash graph feedback. We've just moved it to the new Dynamics platform where all of Microsoft's feedback is going now. And you're 
go and reference and cite customers are asking for particular things as they come for a review. And I, and I think sometimes maybe our listeners or our customers don't believe that we are listening, but this is one primary example where I've been in API review meetings with you where you've referenced something that's been voted up and gone, well, actually you're wrong. People do want this. And yes, we should ship this as part of this, this cycle. That teams will listen to the customers wanting stuff before they'll listen to me. So I, <laughs> I, I, I use that feedback all the time as, no, there's a customer who says that they want to do this. And so this is the other challenge, and it's something that we have to get better at. Uh, I'm, you asked before, what was the breakdown of folks who were coming to API reviews? It's often the engineers who are actually implementing uh, the, the thing. Well, guess what? Those engineers are not necessarily the ones who are talking to customers on a daily basis. And so sometimes there can be a gap in the communication between the teams who, uh, the people who are having the conversations with the customers. And many of the times the PMs are talking about the product and talking about the product features and possibly less about the actual API itself. Um, and so the engineers come along and say, well, I've never heard that that particular request is, well, yes, I know, because because you're a dev and you like <laughs> you hide in the corner in your cube and you don't go out and talk to customers as much as some of us. Well, well now, so wait a minute. I don't hide in the corner. The boss doesn't let me talk to customers. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's the other possibility. Yes, you should be coding, not talking. <laughs> Yeah, you know, you know, yeah. you mentioned uh, like internal API libraries, and that sparks a question. When, when you're doing a review, do do you just look at the 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 shape of the endpoint, or do you run tools to to not just the linter things, but to actually run tools to to consume the APIs? To how, what what kind of things do you do to kind of understand if the API feels quote natural or, or fits? So. Um we don't run the APIs and use the APIs because if we could run the APIs and use the APIs, they would already have been implemented and that's a red flag. <laughs> it's too late. <laughs> um, Perfect. So you run it. If you get 404s, life's good. Got it. <laughs> yeah. But uh, again, as part of some of our internal tooling we've built, we, we take that API description and we play around with it and we'll, we'll generate a UML model diagram, like an relationship diagram for it for us to be able to get a feel for all all of the different parts. We convert it into OpenAPI and put it through Swagger UI so that we can see all the paths that are created in order to give us like those different visualizations. Um, and teams always come to us with uh, during the API review, not with just just the, the you know the technical design, but these are the scenarios that we're trying to address. And here's a list of examples. Uh, and those are by far some of the best tools that we have uh, during API review is we have the teams walk us through the examples and say, this is how a user would achieve this goal by doing this and then doing this. And this is the response that would come back. And so there are there is some tooling from a visualization perspective, but not from a here's how let's actually go and play with the API because we really don't want them to have written the API because then they're less enthusiastic when we ask them to make changes. So at a certain point in time, and I've not been involved in somewhere I've seen this, but they were at one point we were writing the docs and using the docs, like it was almost like a docs first design. Is is that gone away? I can see the smirk on your face. You, you know, just a little bit too I much. Know, Dar- <laughs> I, well, I just know Daryl went with you too long to. Um, not every org within Microsoft does things the same way. 
And uh, if we're talking with the, for example, the OneDrive SharePoint team, they have a culture of writing the docs first in a strict docs format that will emit uh, the API description from the docs. And they they have that approach that they use. And then they will either come to us with a, a list of scenarios and examples on top of that set of, of skeleton docs. Uh, so that's one approach. Other teams work the other way around. Um, they do the scenarios and examples, and then they come out with the API description. And then they use scaffolding tool in order to generate the scaffolding of the docs. And then they a human being writes hopefully clear and concise documentation to explain how to use the API. Um, it's worth pointing out, our reference documentation is not pure machine generated. We, it is, it is, there's very much a human effort. There's, there's editors, there's, there's a lot of thought that goes into the documentation. Now, are, are there places that could be improved? Absolutely, 100%. Are there places that we could have more automation to make things maybe more accurate and more complete? Absolutely. It's certainly not something that we're ignoring. We are working towards it, but we spend a lot of time uh, trying to improve our documentation. Uh, the challenge, of course, is, as I mentioned before, there are hundreds of new changes coming to the API all of the time. So it, it it's a lot to keep up on. Yeah, I've subscribed to the change log and it's it's the never ending stream of stuff coming through. Sometimes it's one or two items and sometimes it's a lot like when the compliance stuff hit the graph, it was a massive change it was hard, hard to follow. And that was a, that was a good example of where it went from being manually created as one giant markdown page to part, like kind of built into the onboarding process and generated. Uh, but then with some curation by content editors over the top. So that actually worked because it meant that nothing was missing from what was being shipped. But it did in some cases mean that some went out without any kind of human written text. It was all generated based on the, the API syntax. But, you know, I'm okay with, I'm okay with that because if there's something in there that I'm using, then I like, well, maybe I should go look, right? And if it's not a detail, well, lucky for me, I have people I can call if it doesn't make sense. But, but it's better to know that something narrative without quite knowing what it is as opposed to just being in the dark and it whacking us uh, across the thing. Although that still happens, right? right? And, and so um, do you track that at all as your role, Daryl, or do you leave that onto the, the teams about uh, what, you know, what's, what goes in the change log and, and when do you allow breaking changes? Breaking change? Oh, no. No, 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 no breaking changes. Okay. Uh, well, smug. Of course in, not. In beta, we allow breaking changes. Hence why it's really important that everybody get their feedback <laughs> to us while it's in beta. Um, otherwise, we have to do some dancing around. Um, yeah, the for in the API itself, for what goes over the wire, we work really, really hard to make sure that there are no breaking changes. Sometimes there's changes to the model that caused there to be a, a breaking change in our client-generated RSDKs. Um, so you'll sometimes see a, a major version bump in RSDKs. And next time you update to our latest version of SDK, you might have to do a couple of renames or some type changes in that. Um, but the, the general philosophy is uh, if you have an app that's out there and working, we're not going to make a change to an API that is going to cause your app to break with the two caveats of security and privacy, because they they trump all. Um, but that's that doesn't 
that is a very very rare occurrence um but no no we we are it's it's a fairly unique policy in that you know we say we're v1 um but we are probably never going to be a v2 um and we have a team who are working on updating some of that versioning we thought in the past we were going to make it to a v2 um but man that's a lot of cat herding uh to get 70 different teams to get ready to migrate to a major version bump um and so our approach instead which has really addressed all of the concerns from our workload teams is if you have um, a new change that you want to make that would traditionally be considered a breaking change, we ask teams to mark the existing element as deprecated and create a new element uh, that represents the new behavior. And then um, it's it's a three-year deprecation cycle where they have to support both. So it gives customers that option to be able to time when they want to move from the old functionality to the new functionality on a case-by-case basis, on a feature-by-feature basis, rather than there being just like this big bang of, oh my goodness, there's a V2 for entirety of graph. And I have 101 changes that I have to make in my app that isn't going to bring me any value today. Um, so this incremental approach of just basically introducing new stuff and deprecating old stuff is the way that we will be moving forward in the future. There will probably be people listening to this going, this sounds like a really cool job. And then wondering, how? what is the career path for someone to become an API architect on an API of this scale across 50, 60 engineering groups. Like, what was your path to this role? Um, I started showing up to API reviews. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I was, I, when I, I joined Microsoft over in Azure in the API management team, I was a dev. And the, over in Azure, they do the same thing. They have API reviews. I happened to know somebody who was on an API review. They knew how I had a little bit of an obsession with HTTP status codes <laughs> and said, little, little hey, bit. why don't you come to <laughs> API review? And so I started attending uh, the API review and contributing where I could. Spent a lot of time listening. And then... I, I I met Gareth at an API conference in Berlin one time and Gareth was on the graph API review and he said, hey, why don't you come tell us when we're using status codes wrong uh, in graph? And so I joined the, the graph API review while I was still over in the Azure team. Um, and that's, that's how I did. One of the nice things about Microsoft as a company to work at, like if you get your work done, right? And you, you do the things that your manager wants you to do, you can do other stuff and help other people within the org that is interesting to you. And generally, when you've got supportive management structure, uh, they'll, they'll let you spread your wings. Yeah. And actually, you know, it's just coming out of what we call connect season here, managing nine people now. When people write up like what they've done for the last six months, there's a huge encouragement across Microsoft as a standard of like your individual contributions as well as how you help others and how you build on top of others as, as two really strong pillars. And so, you know, with my team, I'm always encouraging them to be like, well, what could you do to go help this other team um, if it interests you or if it, it benefits from the domain we're in? And as well as what about what are people doing that you could take and 
get to the next level. And and so I, d- I do love that about the culture at Microsoft and the fact that we can do those things. And you're a great example of that with, you know, all the stuff that you do. One of the teams that would uh, was coming to us for API review, uh, one of the developers on the team who was presenting the API review, she re- reached out to me afterwards and said, you know, I'm really interested in this whole API design process and I want to learn more. Um, she's like, can can we meet and chat every now and again? And so I'm, I'm meeting with her regularly and, and helping to guide her down the path. And like, it, 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 I, I think um, generally there's an absence of folks who have a passion for API design and find it interesting and want to contribute and want to learn in the space. Um, and we've hired a number of new uh, API architects at Microsoft, we're still looking for more, and they're not an easy uh, f- skill set to hire for, because you have to you have to be have a little bit of a thick skin, and you have to be a little bit mean sometimes, and tell people that their baby is ugly. <laughs> Bless their heart. <laughs> but it's also really rewarding as well. Yeah. Uh, insofar as you know, when you come out of an API review, and the team's like. Oh yeah, this is much better than 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 how we started. Well, it gives them the confidence of what they came up with, right? It's it's neat. So now that um, the tool is out, I, I pronounce it wrong. I'm told, but Kyoto or Kyoto, no, Kyoto, whatever it correct. is. It's it's Jeremy that pronounces it wrong. Oh, excellent. <laughs> What's wrong with Kyoto? I mean, come on. Nothing. It's just not the right pronunciation. <laughs> Is there anything next that uh, folks can look forward to or provide feedback on? Obviously, uh, the announcements just came out with Build, so not looking to, to, to get anybody in trouble. But uh, what kind of, obviously, just looking at APIs over and over and over again probably is not the job that you wanted. So uh, any exciting things you can share? We can take Kyoto further. Excellent. <laughs> um, Kyoto currently generates um, programming languages, SDKs. Um, and I think... One of one of its many characteristics that makes it a little bit unique is it leverages the fact that HTTP APIs use URIs that are a hierarchy. And you'll if you look at most tooling in the HTTP space, they take that hierarchy and kind of go, oh, I really wish that the hierarchy wasn't there. Let's see if we can smudge it down into <laughs> something that looks like a procedure call. If you look at how Swagger UI works, if you look at a lot of docs, they all kind of like, I wish this was a lot shorter and it wasn't really a hierarchy. They don't take advantage of that hierarchy. And that's one of the reasons why Kyoto is able to build SDKs for, for very large APIs like Microsoft Graph, because it, it takes that hierarchy and makes it first class. One of the things that we are experimenting with is what if you took that hierarchy and you used it to help you with documentation and found a way of presenting, a way of exploring the API as a hierarchy, as a way of discovering the metadata of the API in a more human consumable way than just looking at a an, an API description. Um, so we're going to be experimenting with getting Kyoto to generate Markdown as uh, a tool to help people learn. Because it was funny, in one of the roundtables we had the other day talking about Kyoto, there was a theme of 
I want you to help me learn how to use your API. And you you mentioned it earlier when you said, when you're in the API reviews, do you actually go and use that API? And usually one of the solutions that people come up with, because I say, yeah, but I don't want them to have implemented it. A lot of people come up with the notion of mocking tools. So you take an API description, and you throw throw it into a mocking tool and it generates some kind of service that you can then go and take your favorite HTTP client like Postman or Stoplight or whatever, and you can go and try that API and it returns back to you canned, pre-canned examples. But maybe you don't actually need to build an API because um, interestingly, HTTP APIs are built on exactly the same protocol that the web is built on top of. So a website is really just an API that you're just putting a browser in front of. So what if you had a browser and you just navigated HTML pages as if you were kind of exploring the API? Can we get that same experience? Yeah. Notice how he went from saying there'll be some new things and tried to stop himself <laughs> and then just spent four minutes talking about the future of it. Yeah, generate Markdown. I just spent a couple of weeks writing and reviewing Markdown documents to make sure it's right for the new people that are coming on board. So, yeah, that would be would have been nice. Although it's probably been there and I just haven't noticed it yet. That's typically how it works, but... That's very interesting. The standout from the these are public roundtables from builds. Um, the stand the standout for me was Gavin Barron, um, who's at Intergen here in Redmond. Who's I've known him for a long time. He's a great speaker, amazing dev. I was talking about organizations using it to generate SDKs that controlled the boundaries of what APIs they could call. So if the organization decided that you could only use OneDrive APIs and mail APIs and calendar APIs, but couldn't use contacts. You could use it to generate an SDK that only included those things. And from organizations I'd worked with as a consultant years ago in Australia, like that would have been tremendously useful in the teams I, we were in with like 70, 80 devs to just keep people within the realms of where you wanted them to be, right? And so I, I hadn't considered that aspect of it as a organizational boundary versus I just want to package this SDK up because it's only using these things and ship it to keep it nice and light and lean. Um, and so it is amazing how creative people get with some of this stuff that, I mean, full credit to you, mate. Like you came up with this, you built a prototype in your spare time in air quotes and, you know, well, I, I did. I, I, I partnered with, with yeah, Vincent yeah. In, in producing that. But I mean, it's come a, a long way. And then Vincent's, Vincent, everyone has taken it now to this, this new level. And it's, it's just amazing to see what a, a change that can have in industry. Because uh, this isn't just for graph. This is for yeah. uh, the, the Actually, Vincent made an inter interesting comment today is, is permissions that we have on Microsoft Graph, like files.read and files.read.all and uh, tasks.read. They're the closest thing that we have to scenario. And so if you if you say like these are the scenarios that my app needs to support um and pick those that set of permissions, then being able to just go and say, oh, just create me an SDK that just supports these scenarios. Um, then it's it's a great way of scoping down the SDK so it's smaller in size, it's smaller to learn, um, and you can always make it bigger if you want, if you want decide to support some additional scenarios further down the road. So it's it's very nice when there becomes these serendipitous use cases for stuff that you've built 
um, that you just you hadn't considered. So it, I think it's kind of a signal that you're heading down the right path when you start hearing things like that. You know, I'm gonna. It's on my list to do because we've got four new devs, and if I throw them at the graph, I'm sure they'll be overwhelmed. But there's only what twenty some that I need them to know right away for our product. So I may just generate an SDK with those in there. So learn what we're doing first, and go play on your quote spare time. So lots of yeah, lots of opportunities there. It's great stuff. So to close off, we had one question about HTTP status codes. I don't know if you saw this on Twitter. <sighs> I did not see this on Twitter. Okay. So I have not studied. And I actually went looking for HTTP status code jokes, as in I wanted to see whether you thought the HTTP jokes were funny. Turns out Google's not good at that. But there is a funny statuses, which is 418. And do you know the background of 418? Of course I know the background. I've not heard of this before. Of course. Mm. 418 is I'm a teapot. Uh, every, generally every April 1st, somebody in the IETF organization writes a joke RFC. Uh, <laughs> and the this, this is from years ago. Somebody wrote an entire RFC for the coffee pot protocol. <laughs> and uh, there's, there's the 418 is one of the status codes. And there's an, there's an interesting history of that status code is it was in the official IANA registry and then it was going to be removed. And then some, I think it was a high school student who mounted a rebellion and convinced people to not remove it. And yes, it's, that's really it's, funny. Did not know about that one. Well, so I get the joke that it's a coffee protocol and the teapot is in the 400 zone. Am I, should I be worried? Am I getting too close? To <laughs> <laughs> You'll be coming yeah, one of them, Paul. You have to go yeah. read the, the, go read the spec. Yeah, I have to go find that now. There's another one, which is um, the avian protocol carrier pigeon protocol uh, <laughs> i have heard of that funny one RFC. i didn't nice. know about the teapot nice. one well look thank you so much uh, for coming on mate it's always a pleasure to get you on um from worrying we don't be able to speak for 10 minutes ha ah. <laughs> uh we're at nearly 15 <laughs> minutes of talk track uh so yeah appreciate it and uh as for all the listeners that asked for this um i'm glad that we did this because i learned a lot and i hope you did too yeah thanks daryl it's been a pleasure thank you for having me Thanks for listening to the Microsoft 365 Developer Podcast. Please follow us on Twitter at M365DevPodcast and check out our show notes at www.m365devpodcast.com. To help us spread the word, we'd really appreciate it if you could retweet our episode tweets and give us a review on iTunes. That's all, folks. 